are in a series called Refined. This is about deconstructing and reconstructing our faith. What's reconstruction? What's deconstruction? Deconstruction is when we take a serious and critical look at our belief. It's the process of taking apart and probing, wondering, wrestling, exploring our faith. In the course of our faith lives, we might go from youth group where we sing songs that have na 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 in them to trying to figure out what it is that we believe and why it is that we believe it. And this is a really important process. And it's a process of like taking apart a radio, like you might have done as a kid or a watch. You take out all the pieces and you try to figure out how it works and you put it all back together again. And in doing that, we refine our faith. That is, we find it again. And also, our faith is refined in that process. We've been using the metaphor of home renovation shows, um, which shows us that before you can put in the new parts of the house, you have to demo the old parts of the house. That's how house renovation works. That's how faith renovation works. So this past summer at my house, we started doing demo work on our front porch. In this picture, we had to tear down this wall. There was this old room on the front of our porch that we were trying to get rid of. And so we took a hammer and hammered out that hole. And then two of my housemates heaved me up over the other side into the hole. And then they tossed me a sledgehammer. And I got to like whack that wall out from the inside, which was super fun. Um, and I feel like a couple years ago, I had that same experience with my faith, where I was heaved on the inside of it, trying to figure out what to do with it, and basically just took a sledgehammer to it. because. Things weren't making sense to me. I was in the middle of a major faith crisis and I felt like I just need to tear this down to the studs and start over again. Our front porch isn't done yet. It's getting there and I don't feel like my faith journey is done yet. In fact, when we were divvying up the topics for teaching team, I looked at them and TC was like, which one of these do you want? And I was like, I don't want any of these. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I think about these things. I don't know where I am. And so this message on faith is as much for me as anyone else. Faith is a tricky thing, and God gets that. Over and over and over again, Jesus says to his followers, oh, you of little faith. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says that that translation that we have of you of little faith is actually literally little faiths. And he, we think that it's a word that Jesus coined as a, as a nickname for his disciples. He called them his little faiths, which I think yeah, it's kind of a bummer of a nickname because <laughs> Jesus calls Peter the rock and he calls James and John the sons of thunder and it's like little faiths. But he does call us sheep, so there's that. Maybe not the most flattering nickname, but I think it's a good description of us. Jesus says to his little faiths, don't worry, God will take care of you. He says when he is in the boat and he stills the storm, storm, why were you afraid, little faiths? When Peter's walking on the water and he falls, Jesus said, why did you doubt me, little faith? Um, he knows. He knows that we are we're little faiths. So as we walk this way, it's okay to be little faiths. It's very lovable. And it'll maybe help us uh, keep perspective on this journey. Okay, so you don't have to raise your hand, but show of hands, how many have you, of you have ever found yourself thinking, this Jesus thing is ridiculous? We're supposed to believe that God became a baby, was born of a virgin, grew up into this man who turned water into wine, then walked on water just for the heck of it. Then he says, I am God, I'm the only way to God, and he comes back from the dead. And it's really weird stuff. And 
I don't know. I, I feel like every other month I just have this thought of like, really? I'm not so sure about this. So today we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 6 where people who had been eagerly following Jesus heard him make some really outlandish claims that forced them to slam into these big questions and doubts that they had about him. And I think by looking at this passage in John 6, we can see three helpful phases in our faith journey of um, so I'll, I'll go through those. So to set the context, at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people from five loaves of bread and two fish. And just to wrap up the day, he then walks on water to catch up with his disciples who are in a boat. So the next day, the crowds find him on the other side of the lake. And naturally, they have a lot of questions. And Jesus has this really interesting conversation and very weird conversation with them. So let's pick up uh, verse 25 in chapter 6. They found him on the other side of the lake and said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. So people are asking, how did you beat us to this side of the lake? And Jesus doesn't even answer that question. He just jumps straight into their motivation. He says, actually, you're just here for the food. I know that about you, but there's things that matters more. Which, like, duh, of course they're there for the food. If I was in the crowd and I found someone who could make bread out of nothing, I'm totally there for the food, right? But Jesus, he's, this is very typical Jesus. He says, you know, don't get stuck on this one thing and miss the big picture. There's more important things here. Verse 28. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. So this is the second question that people have for Jesus. Okay, you say you've got God's stamp of approval. You say you're doing these works of God. How can we do those works? But Jesus' answer is surprising here too. He doesn't say, here's the things you should do. He says to them, right now the work that God has for you is to believe. So first he steps the people away from being concerned about perishable things like food. And then Jesus says the imperishable thing that matters is belief in him. Verse 30. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses did not give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread of heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They want to know what kind of signs Jesus can do. And I think this is also a really good question. Because if someone says, believe in me, the natural response is, okay, but why? Why should I believe in you? Give me some kind of reason to believe in you. And the Jews, for all of their history, had been following the God who revealed himself in signs. So where were the signs now? And Jesus' answer is basically, those pieces of manna falling from the sky was the sign back then. But I am the manna now. I am the sign from God for today. Verse 34. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. 
For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. So the crowds are still trying to figure out this bread thing, and Jesus is saying again, this is a distraction. Stop getting distracted by that. I'm the bread that you want. If you want bread every day, I'm the only bread that can keep you always satisfied. Verse 41. We're we're, going to make it, guys. This is a long passage, but we're getting there. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? And again, this is a great question to ask. If someone shows up and here and says, I'm from heaven, and yet you know they're that kid from the carpenter shop down the street, why wouldn't you ask that question? It's a good one. Let's skip down to verse 47. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world will live, is my flesh. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. The crowds have been following Jesus for a good bit now. They followed him from town to town and listened to him and watched him. He said profound things. He said confusing things. And then he says this downright, crazy, bewildering thing. And what on earth are you supposed to do with this? This isn't the kind of thing if somebody says that you just let slide, right? (laughs) Verse 60. Many of his disciples said, what I would say, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone (laughs) accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man descend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me, for Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Fascinating exchange. There is so much going on here. So first thing I want to point out is that this whole episode comes up because the people are asking questions. And this is what I consider to be phase one of our faith journey, asking questions. This crowd, for a variety of reasons, wants to know more. And they're good questions, questions we ourselves ask today. 
how do we follow God? What evidence is there to believe you, Jesus? Who are you? What do the things you say mean? The points people are raising are the kinds of things you should ask before you just climb on board with someone. And all this questioning opens the door to their doubts because that's where doubt starts. It starts with questions. Doubt is that little voice that says, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. Let me ask a question or two. And this is a good thing. We are told that we are, loved to, or we are told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And I think when we ask questions, we are loving God with our minds. How can you know someone without asking questions? Have you tried to make a friend without asking any questions about them? Let me know how that goes. And there are so many questions to ask. Over the years, I've talked to people about what keeps them back from faith. And it's interesting the different issues that people have. Science, suffering, hell, morality, exclusivity, Christians. And these are all things that we have to wrestle with no matter what our belief system. But you'll find in this conversation, Jesus doesn't ever ask the people to engage with the belief system. Amid all these things he's saying, he asks them to engage with him. Do you believe me? This is how it works. We are asked to trust a person. Even the movies know this, so let's watch a clip. Throw that up there, TJ. Sure, do you trust me? What? Do you trust me? Yes. one character is asking the other to trust them in a very personal way. When Jasmine asks, is it safe? Aladdin does not respond by giving her a lecture on the aerodynamic properties of magic carpets. <laughs> well, Jasmine, let me tell you about how tassels interact with drag and lift. Instead, he says to her, sure, do you trust me? Jack doesn't ask Rose to believe in the structural integrity of the Titanic. Good call, Jack. <laughs> but in him. Iron Man isn't asking Captain America to trust in a new kind of technology, but in their relationship. And Gandalf needs Bilbo to believe not what the ring makes him feel, but in his friendship with Gandalf, etc., etc. In the same way, throughout this whole conversation, Jesus is telling them that at the end of all their questions and their doubts is him. In fact, the only thing that God is asking of them is that you believe in the one he has sent. It's so easy, though, to get sidetracked away from the centrality of belief and wander down a bunch of other trails. Like the crowd focused on the bread, we often try to build our faith on secondary things, not on Jesus. For example, when I was in high school, I was a faithful reader of this magazine called Creation, which was devoted to defending a literal Genesis interpretation of creation. And the whole premise of this magazine was that 
this had to be where Christians drew the line in faith. Because according to the magazine, there was a direct connection between believing in evolution and the downfall of society. Because it opened the doors, they said, to secularism and moral relativism. And the thought was, if we lose out on, Christian, or on creation literalism, we're going to lose the whole ballgame. Now that, this is interesting, that magazine is actually now called Answers, which I find is really interesting because who doesn't want answers, right? But that's not how faith works. And I don't know how exactly God created the earth, six days, six million. I don't know, I wasn't there at the beginning. But I do know that whether the earth was created in six days cannot be the foundation of my faith. In the same way, while the questions the crowd asked were good, Jesus wanted them to see that the foundation of their faith couldn't be built on signs and manna and bread, and even understanding everything he was saying. Don't be so concerned about perishable things, Jesus says. Spend your energy seeking eternal life. In our work of reconstructing, we're going to ask a lot of questions, and they're going to be good questions. But don't fall into the trap of getting distracted by the lesser questions. Don't be concerned with having to nail down answers to every peripheral thing. Spend your energy on the foundational question, because our final reckoning will always be with Jesus. The book of John has far and away, more than any of the other books, phrases where Jesus says, I am such and such. For instance, in this one chapter, Jesus says, I am the bread of life five times. We heard you the first time, John. John also uses the word believe more than any of the other gospel accounts, which makes sense because John tells us the purpose of his book in John 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's some things that Jesus says he is. He says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am from above. I am not of this world. I am he, the Messiah. I am he, the Son of God. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine. I am in the Father. I think John writes all these things because he's saying, look, here's what Jesus is saying he is. What are you going to do with that? On the other hand, John also covers a bunch of people who are arguing about who Jesus is, trying to sort out who he is. So these are the he is statements. He is a good man. He is a fraud and a deceiver. He's demon-possessed. He's the Messiah. He's a Samaritan. He's a sinner. He's a prophet. He's Lord. He's raving mad. He's a blasphemer. He's a mere man. He's the king of Israel. Those two. What, what a list. What contrast. And this is what faith is. We have somebody tell us, this is who I am. And then we try to figure out, okay, who is this guy? We question, we grapple, we look at the evidence. But this, this is not about a system of beliefs. This is not about philosophy. This is not about ethics. It's not about ideas or isms. It's about Jesus. But why Jesus claims? Can we, can we get by without looking at his claims? There are other people who claim to be the Messiah, right? There are other prophets. There's Mohammed and Buddha. There's Joseph Smith. The reason I think wrestling with Jesus' claims is more important than any other figure in history is because Jesus made the most consequential claims of anyone else. No one has said the things Jesus said. Jesus, we are told to believe, is God, has reconciled us to God through the cross, 
was resurrected after he died and is still alive today, inviting us into relationship with him. No one else has ever made that claim. Which means that if Jesus is not God, if Jesus' death on the cross does not bring redemption, and if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is useless and pointless. Go get your life somewhere else. Seriously, that, there's no point to Jesus without those things. We can all get up, walk out of the church, if those claims aren't true. We'll, we'll go like bowling or play bingo or something. But if those things are true, then this is really, really high-stakes stuff to figure out what to do with. You're gambling with the God of the universe, which isn't small potatoes. Which brings us to phase two, decision time. At the end of this whole crazy, weird conversation, the people have two choices. Choose yes or choose no. We either take Jesus at his word or we don't. All these people heard the exact same message, the exact same words come out of Jesus' mouth, they saw the exact same miracles, they had the exact same testimony. And some people left and some people stayed. God won't force you into anything. Jesus let people walk away from him all the time, and we get to choose. The one thing you can't do, though, is live in doubt land forever. At some point, you need to step out of the boat. At some point, you need to throw in your lot with this guy or walk away. At some point, as Jesus told Thomas, you need to stop doubting and believe. Last week, TC said something that was pretty cool. He said that when we're doing our deconstructing and reconstructing, we can't live in a demolition site all our lives. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to live in a, in a home. This is a hard message. This is confusing. So we either end up saying, how can you accept this? Or to whom else will we go? Okay, so you ask your questions, you look at the evidence, you study Jesus' claims, you test and you probe and you doubt and you decide, and once you decide, ta-da, everything's good, right? Glad we got that sorted out, our brain space is all free, we can move on to other things. Nope, now we enter phase three, ambiguity or living with uncertainty. The entire rest of the book of John the people who have made various decisions, already made a decision, the disciples included, are still trying to sort this out. Most of the list I showed you of what people thought Jesus might be, a lunatic, a, a god, whatever, that happened after that incident in John 6. So we know that even when we take a step one way or the other, it's not settled entirely. And this means that we are going to have to do something that does not feel good. And that not good feeling thing is living in uncertainty. But following Jesus, or really any act of faith, means we will need to be okay with living in ambiguity. Uh, one of the best lessons my mom has taught me over the years, hi mom, this is my mom, is to learn how to tolerate discomfort. And living like this is uncomfortable. We want to feel good, we want to have things sorted out, and we need to learn to be okay with not being comfortable all the time, to live with ambiguity. I think church people can be the worst at this because we have got it in our heads that there's only room for absolute certainty. Now, I'm not saying that we just believe this stuff willy-nilly. The reason I believe in Jesus is that for me, the evidence has been strong enough that when Jesus says, do you trust me? My heart says back to him, yes, I trust you. Faith doesn't have to be blind. That would be really foolish and irresponsible. We make decisions with the best information we have, but we also know that we can't 100% prove anything. So we can be convinced and skeptical at the exact same time, and we have to learn how to sit in that tension. So maybe mathematicians and scientists can show us how this works. So 
in high school, math was not, it was, it was hard for me, but I really liked geometry. And the reason I liked geometry was because there were systems and everything built around everything else. Best of all, we got to do proofs. What you do with proofs is you take, okay, this angle is this many degrees, which means that this line intersecting here is this many degrees, and you start with if A, then B, if B, then C, and then at the end of this whole proof that you write connecting all this, you say QED, which means like demonstrated. It is proved, and it was so satisfying. I loved proofs. But the funny thing about geometry is that at the end of all the proof making, math is built on things we can't prove. So let me try to explain, and I apologize, Ginger and people who know math about how badly I'm going to butcher this. But in geometry, you have postulates and you have theorems. Theorems are great. They are statements that can be proved. Um, an example of a theorem is that if two lines intersect, they intersect at one point and one point only. We can prove that. But theorems aren't the starting point of geometry. The starting point is postulates, and postulates cannot be proved. They are statements that we assume are true without any proof. For example, a, one of the postulates is that a line contains at least two points. I don't know why we can't prove that, but there is no mathematical proof for that. And to get to theorems, we have to go through postulates first. Yet I think we would consider postulates to be reliable because I don't think any of us has yet found a line that doesn't have two points, but we can't prove it. Then there's physics, which this is one of my favorite things about physics, is something called the uncertainty principle. And again, apologies to people who actually know physics stuff in detail. But the uncertainty principle says that if we have a particle, we cannot know how fast it's going and its position at the same time. I can, if I have a particle, I can know like, oh, it's zipping along at this speed, at this momentum. But in measuring that, I don't know where it is. But if I pinpoint, oh, the particle is here, that's great, but I don't know how that speed is going. We are uncertain about that. So baked into our understanding of the universe and how the fundamental principles of physics is a principle that we call the uncertainty principle, which basically says, here is a thing that we cannot know because we have limits. And I, I love that. Physics looks through the lens not of certainty, but of probabilities. One of my favorite physicists, uh, his name is Richard Feynman, and he says, the scientist has a lot of experience with ignorance and doubt and uncertainty. Scientific knowledge is a body of statements of varying degrees of certainty, some most unsure, some nearly sure, but none absolutely certain. Now we scientists are used to this and we take it for granted that it is perfectly consistent to be unsure, that it is possible to live and not know. I think we could learn from the physicists. Part of the reason I bring up geometry and physics too is that when we're not thinking that we have to be absolutely certain about faith, we also sometimes divide up the world into faith and science. And in science, you have hard facts and proof and evidence, and in faith, you kind of just believe things that are absolutely true. But the reality is that in every single part of life, we are choosing to believe and trust in things we cannot prove. We dig and we probe and we test and we hypothesize, and then we take whatever our theory is and we run with it. We believe in Jesus because of high probabilities. I confess that at least for me that doesn't feel good. I wish there was 100% knowing, but life is faith. 
So like the crowds and the disciples, we come to Jesus and we begin phase one. We ask questions. How do we follow God? How do we know you're reliable? Who are you? What do you mean when you say these things? We listen to his claims. I'm the bread of life, he says. We weigh the evidence. On the one hand, miracles, teaching. On the other hand, this is Joseph's kid. And then we look at this God-man and we move into phase two, the decision point. We say, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Or we say, to whom else would we go? And then a little further down the road, we'll catch ourselves in phase three thinking, hmm, am I really sure about this Jesus fellow? But Jesus knows we are his little faiths, the ones who are confused and bewildered. And one of the most comforting verses I can think about in this uh, area is Matthew 28:17. This is the last time Jesus meets his disciples. It's after the resurrection. They're together on top of the mountain, and he's preparing to go back to the Father, and it says, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. <laughs> If anyone had no reason to doubt, it was this group. You saw Jesus dead, you saw him alive, and you're still not sure. And that's so comforting to me, because they were little faiths, just like us. And I want us to be encouraged by that, my fellow little faiths. As G.K. Chesterton says, we're all in the same boat, and we're all seasick. We're all at different points in our faith. We're deconstructing, we're reconstructing. We're asking questions, we're seeking truth, we're looking to make sense. No matter where you are, know that it's okay to live in ambiguity. But I want to say one more thing, because this has been a lot about our brains, but there's also our hearts that factor into this. And our faith and our doubt and our struggles can't be boxed off into our brains. The truth is I think a lot of our faith crises don't come from intellectual pondering, but from our hearts being really hurt. My crisis of faith, or at least my most recent one, didn't come about because I was wondering things like, are the Gospels historically accurate? It wasn't a sterile intellectual thing. My faith crisis came about because I went through some really painful, hard life events. I felt like God let me down, or at least the version of God I knew. I felt betrayed by him. I felt abandoned by him. I didn't think I could take him anymore. I was heartbroken, not mind-broken. So this question-asking thing isn't usually abstract. We're not sitting with our books asking questions. Maybe the questions never actually formulate into sentences. They just pulse out of our hearts. And maybe you're tired and you're hurt by God or by Christians or by the church or life. But the thing is that we take our heartache to the same place we take our questions, to Jesus, who is strong and kind, who is gentle and patient, who is extending his hand and saying, do you trust me? So whether you are taking a sledgehammer to your faith or it feels like your faith is taking a sledgehammer to you, might I suggest that this week you climb down off the construction site, take off your hard hat, wipe your sweaty forehead, and bring all of your entirety, all your little faithness, and sit with Jesus for a minute. That's it. Just sit for a minute, and then the two of you can figure out where to go from there. I'd also encourage you, um, as part of this series, because this is tough stuff we're talking about, our pastors, TC, Oshida, and Durr, are all available to talk about where you might be in this process. Um, in the bulletin, there's some more information about that. Um, but they say, anyone who needs a safe and hopeful space to process their deconstruction journey, come meet with us. 
Um, you are precious and we want to support you. You can meet to talk about church pain, mistrust, theological questions, sitting and praying. No shame, no judgment, no pat answers. Um, and I can testify, when I first came to Roots, I brought a list of all the struggles I was having with church. <laughs> I went out to God who was master and was like, I don't know what I think about this, and I don't really like church, and I'm not really happy with God about this. And so it, w- it was helpful. So I encourage you to do that. But um, yeah, come to Jesus and sit with him for a little bit this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are offering yourself and that we don't have to have answers to all our questions. Thank you that you take our small faith and you accept us. Thank you that you love us enough to give us choices and that we can always come back in all our wandering. Thank you that you love us. Pray that we would this week find you in our seeking. Amen.